uh, chapter 9. My name is Daniel, uh, it's my honor to teach God's Word today and serve as uh, your lead pastor. We're in a series right now called This Changes Everything as we're walking through uh, basically John's gospel, looking at what John calls the signs. And that's uh, specifically miracles of Jesus that are something bigger. And what I mean by something bigger is they're pointing to something more than just the miracle themselves and are leading us into Easter. And this is week five of those. And if it's your first time, uh, I just want to say welcome uh, just from me. And if it's not your first time, but I haven't got the opportunity to meet you as this is my, just my second week, I would love to do that after uh, the service as we're getting to enjoy uh, breakfast as well, Dollar Breakfast Club. Uh, it's, it's simply a dollar and all the proceeds go to our mission partners. If you don't have a dollar, that's okay. You can still uh, eat as well. Um, and so I want to tell you a story before we dive in. Halloween this past year, so my family and I, we just moved about two weeks ago yesterday uh, in, from Rochester, New York uh, to Jonesboro uh, to join the Journey family. And on Halloween this past year, we were going uh, to kind of like a block party uh, at some friend's house from our small group. Uh, all the kids were going to get to go to the neighborhood where this family lived and trick-or-treat together. And we were doing kind of like a potluck. Uh, and so like good church people do. And we're doing today, obviously. And so we did that and it was a, a great time. And uh, we got in the car, loaded up about eight o'clock because our kids are young, just two and one years old and now a baby girl into the world. Uh, and so it was time for bed. And so we headed back to our house about a 10 to 15 minute drive. And we turned onto the block where we lived. Uh, and when we turned onto the block where we lived, I noticed it was dark, like all the streetlights gone. They were out. All the lights in the houses, dark. It's pitch black. No power, right? You know what this happens. The wind blew the power out you know, on Halloween night, like the best night ever for the, for, to be living in darkness. And so we pulled into our driveway. My wife looks at me like, what are we going to do? Uh, and so I was like, okay, I'll just go inside. And I went inside. I gather, gather up all of our flashlights, all the candles that we had in our home, begin to light candles and kind of place them strategically throughout our house and had the flashlight. And, and we were going to get the kids bathed and put down in bed, and I found even the battery pack for uh, our phone, like a portable charger, because both our kids and us sleep with noise machines, like we like a good thunderstorm sound uh, to sleep to, and so I got those all fixed up, and it's like, okay, I, I, we got this figured out. You know, we took a bath by candlelight, uh, and so, you know, our toddlers thought that was amazing, and we finally got them put down. But two hours later, when they were good and fast asleep, the lights came on. <laughs> And so the same dad that was frantically running throughout the house to gather light was now running throughout the house to shut off the light. <laughs> and in this story, what we're going to see is these two groups of people. One that is aware that they are living in darkness and craving the light. And another group that is, feels like they're living in the light, but technically craving darkness. Not to over-spiritualize the story, but we, our target statement this morning as we look at the entire passage of John chapter 9 is this. When you recognize you're blind, Jesus will give you sight. But if you think you can see, you won't. That's simply the idea that Jesus presents to us. When you think you can see on your own, you won't. So let's give some context to John chapter 9 before we dive into it. So John chapter 9 uh, crazily enough, happens after the rousing scene in John chapter 8. And you may think, well, duh, it comes right after John chapter 8. But what I mean by that is 
Some think that this scene happened like literally right after, as we see the transition statement in verse 1. But it definitely it has this connection uh, with the text. Because there's this broader scene that's happening starting in verse chapter 7 of John, where Jesus is starting his ministry kind of in Jerusalem, like targeted in the holy city, because he shows up a partway through the feast of um, the tabernacles in John chapter 7, where they would have this uh, celebration with the water uh, in the temple and celebrating. This is where Jesus says his famous statement, for all those who are thirsty, come to me and drink. And Jesus starts rousing things up in Jerusalem at this moment. And then in John chapter 8, you fast forward and Jesus is in the temple having this conversation with the Pharisees and has the audacity to tell these Pharisees, I existed before Abraham. And you're not his children, you're the devil's children. (laughs) He tells these religious leaders that they are the devil's children. And there at the end of John chapter 8, they are so ticked off. They find rocks in the temple and they're getting ready to throw a rock at Jesus. And then he exits the door. And when he exits the door, we start John chapter 9. And this is how it picks up. And the the fifth sign of Jesus about to heal a blind man starts like this in verse 1. It says, as he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So we see that Jesus' disciples, these 12 guys walking with Jesus, look at this blind man. And we don't know if it's, the reason I started at the beginning, we don't know if they just kind of walk out of the temple and there's this blind man kind of sitting there on the side of the road that that maybe made sense or maybe they exited the temple and they walked away and they're outside the city gates which would have been the more logical place for a blind man to be but either spot it's relevant to the story and so they find this blind man and, and he's maybe within earshot of this conversation maybe they pass by and they have the conversation later but they, they deduce this man's pain and suffering down to a theological question they deduce his pain and suffering down to this simple question Who sinned, this man or his parents? And in their proper theology of pain and suffering for the Jewish believer, this made sense. Because for them, for pain and suffering to occur in the world, you or someone very close to you did something to offend God in such a way where this is where pain is caused. This is where suffering is placed. Because if you read in the Old Testament and the Torah, Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 5, when Moses is reciting the Ten Commandments to a generation who hadn't heard them or received them directly from God through Moses, he recites them again and says this in Deuteronomy 5, 9. You shall not bow the knee to them, that's other gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity or the sin of your father on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I can't just read that verse without reading the follow-up in verse 10. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So in the retelling of the Ten Commandments, Moses reminds the people that your sin not only impacts you, but those behind you. And so in their mind, the disciples are thinking about this. They're thinking, okay, who sinned? Did this man somehow sin in the womb of his mother so God struck him blind? Or did his parents sin therefore they had they were born a child who was blind from birth and Jesus backs up in this moment where they take 
the pain and the suffering of this man who is obviously living in a disability, deducing it down to the academic level. And Jesus brings humanity back into it. Because their question is inhumane at the basic level. They're like, oh, like, this is an easy question, Jesus. Let's talk about theology here and use this man's suffering to have a conversation. And so Jesus backs up and answers like this. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, Jesus chooses not to answer the question of the cause of the pain of suffering. Because in our lives, this is what I've learned in just a few short years on this earth, that a lot of the times when suffering happens in our lives, finding the cause or the source of it is somewhat difficult. It's somewhat difficult for us to pin down, I know exactly why this pain is happening in my life. Unless we sinned and we are having sin happen upon to us, suffering happening upon to us because we did something wrong. Like, I know when I sin in my life and there's ripple effects from that, like, oh yeah, I did that, I know that's why that's happening. But there's other times that bad things happen, evil happens in my life, and I'm like, why is this happening? And I don't always get an answer. And Jesus even goes, listen, follow, follow Jesus' line of thought here. Jesus even teaches us in this moment that there's a type of suffering that happens. He doesn't say, well, God's doing this to correct this man. No, that's not the reason. God's doing it to punish this man. Not the reason. He says, he doesn't even say that God's using this to sanctify this man. But we can make the argument that all suffering probably happens in our lives to sanctify us. But no, Jesus simply gives not a cause, but a purpose. And the purpose behind it is he says, so that God's works would be put on display, not only in his life, but everyone who witnesses it will see God's works. That there is pain that's in this life that is in the purpose so that God might be put on display. Simply to say that the Bible is not silent about disabilities in this life. The Bible is not silent upon it, nor does it say that every disability that happens in this world is for this purpose, but this one is for this purpose. And if you have someone connected to you or you yourself have a disability, be encouraged by this, that God has a purpose behind our pain, behind our suffering, if we lean in to him. And so Jesus continues on to show that God is going to work in this man's life so that he might be glorified. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We see in verses, verse 4, Jesus pits night and day against each other in this way to say that day is when Jesus is with them, but night is when he is removed. And it's not to say that when night comes, as Jesus is using kind of this metaphorical language, that the works of God stop. But John, all throughout John's gospel, is going to use the word night to almost imply this like fear or this terror that is stricken to them. He calls it night when uh, Jesus dies on the cross. He calls it night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus gets arrested. He calls it night because the disciples are fearful and it feels like they are now in spiritual darkness. 
Because their savior, their Messiah, their teacher, their rabbi, the one they've looked to for years has been removed. And Jesus himself says, there's going to be a time when it feels like night falls, when I'm removed from your physical presence. But we know on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus resurrecting from the grave, on this side of Easter, that the work of God does not stop. That the work of God continues on through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his church working. But Jesus says, while I'm here, we got to get to work. While we're still here, we got to do something. And the same could be true of us, that, that we are called to work while it is still day. While we are still here, while we still have time to spread the good news of Jesus and work and be engaged in our community. And Jesus himself says that he is the light, that he is the one we point people to. That Jesus himself says that he's about to do something that not is just a sign for this man that he's going to heal. But it's so the work of God, the one who sent him, would be shown as the one who sends others. And in verse 6, this is what he does. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, and then anointed the man's eyes with mud. So we want, I want to note that here, this is exactly how Jesus heals this man. He makes mud, rubs it on the eyes. And everyone that encounters this man is going to want to know this story. They're going to know, how did this happen? How did he do it? That's, all, that's the only question they're going to ask. And then this is how. That's exactly how. Verse 6. And then verse 7, he said this. He instructs him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So where is this pool? Because a lot of theologians like to debate about the mud and the saliva, like what's the significance and um, <coughs> the anointing, that why does John use that language? And there's a lot of debate. And I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot of debate. But John is very clear at the significance of the pool. He gives you not only where the pool is, what its name is, but also what the pool's name means. He, he wants you to be very clear that this pool has some significance in this sign. He says the pool, which is Siloam, which means sent, which was built um, by Hezekiah through Hezekiah's tunnel. And the water was used in the ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. And John points out not only the location of the pool, but the meaning which is sent from uh, a spring that's set outside the city of Jerusalem. And we learn this in 2 Kings 20, verse 20, about Hezekiah's tunnel. This is talking about Hezekiah, but it says, The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might are shown, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. So this is the context of this pool. The waters are sent from a spring into the city. Jesus sent by the Father to do his works. And then the, the man who is sent by the Father in Jesus is also, Jesus is sending the man to the pool, which name is sent. There's something significant happening about Jesus sending this man because Jesus himself is sent. And then the man is sent and in faithful obedience goes. But his location of where this healing happens, or at least where the mud gets rubbed in his eyes, were two locations that we talked about at the beginning. It's either right outside the temple or right outside the city gates. That's the, probably the two locations this man would have been. But in the midst of that, those locations from this pool, if you look at a map of Jerusalem, is about a half a mile. 
So I want you to just slow down in this moment. Think about a blind man with mud caked in his eyes. Slowly, painstakingly, making his way to a pool on the other side of town. Because some man told him to go. He's making his way through the crowd, mud caked in his eyes. Having faith, trusting that this man is somebody, not just anybody, but somebody important that could do something miraculous in his life. So he goes. And he's making his way through the crowd. John just says he goes and he finds it and he washes and then he sees. But we don't get all this interlude in between of how he's making it. Like, Imagine being a bystander on the street, seeing a blind man with mud caked in his eyes trying to find his way to the pool. It means sent, like trying to figure out his path to get there. He's been blind from birth, so he, he doesn't even have a map in his mind of what it looks like. Okay, turn left here. But he's been blind his whole life, so he probably knows how to navigate this city. He knows how to navigate it, being a blind man for his whole life, but he's making his way with mud caked in his eyes, no light in, able to intrude into his vision to get to the pool. This is the miracle that happens in his faithful obedience, slowly, painstakingly walking through the crowd. Yet in faith, he went. Yet in faith, he was healed. And Peter Lewinhart, theologian, writes this about this miracle. It says, the blind man is being healed by the sent one in the pool of sending and thereby becomes one sent a type of an apostle. He is plunged into the pool, sent by the one sent, immersed in the sent one's sending. <laughs> a lot of sending there. But this is happened, and this is what happens next. He's healed, but look at the events that transpire. And you could break down this in your own Bible just by the paragraph. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter in its entirety, but we're going to pick some verses to go out. In John 9, 13 through 17, the healed man gets noticed um, by his, or 8 through 12, sorry, I missed the, a section there. John 9, 8 through 12, he gets noticed by his neighbors. So imagine this, my, uh, he got mud streaming down his face. Maybe he washes it off, maybe he doesn't, we don't know. But he's walking back. And then his neighbors spot him and like, wait a second. Isn't that the guy who was blind? And they're kind of transpiring back and forth. Like, no, that's not the guy. It just looks like the guy who's blind. And he goes, no, it's me. It, it's me. I've been, I've been healed. I can see now. I'm like, how'd that happen? And he simply says, it's a man named Jesus. So he, they said this, John 9, 9. How were your eyes then opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And then they continue on. And then some Pharisees find out about it because it happened on the Sabbath day. And then verses 13 through 17, they want to interrogate him. They want to interrogate this man who is healed because their first thought is, this man that healed the, the blind man is not from God. Because if he was from God, he, he would know not to do this on the Sabbath day. They would, he would know to follow our rules. He would know that he's not supposed to break the tradition. Because the law that they reference to in the man, in the conversation, is not biblical Old Testament law. It's, it's Mishnah. It's Jewish tradition law. They says, you're not supposed to do this or that. 
And they come to this conclusion in their first round of interrogation to the healed man and say, what are your thoughts on this miracle healer? And he simply says, he's a prophet. So we go from a man called Jesus to now, to the Pharisees, he calls him, he's a prophet. And then we move to verses 18 through 23, where the healed man's parents get interrogated by the Pharisees. They want to they bring his parents in because they don't really believe this guy. They're like, well, maybe he just had some dirt in his eye and he wasn't really blind. Maybe that's what's happened. He wasn't actually a blind man. Maybe he had some like dust or something in there he couldn't see. Maybe he just had a sickness or an infection and, and he got healed from the pool. So, so he really wasn't blind. Let's bring his parents in. So they bring the, the man's parents in and they start having a conversation and inter- interrogating the parents. Maybe the, the healed man's still sitting there like, is this your son? Like, yep, that's him. Blind from birth. How'd he see? We don't know. How'd it happen? We don't know. Like, who did it? We don't know. <laughs> they answer in the most generic way possible because in this context, what's happening here is they know if they answer specifically and they make any faith statements or statements about this man called Jesus, they could potentially lose their credentials in the temple. They could lose their social status in the temple and never be welcomed back in there. So they want to be as generic as possible. They're being very strategic and they're pleading the fifth, basically. They end their section with saying, just ask him, he's of age. Which begs me to ask the question that this healed man hasn't backed down yet in front of his neighbors, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the community leaders, and even in front of his, his parents about what has happened in his life. He's been very upfront. He's like, this is what's happened to me. I was blind. Now I see. Explain that. My life has totally been changed. But everyone else in the story wants to know, okay, how did it happen? Did it happen the right way, in the right timing, in the right place? And his parents answer questions in in a simple way just to protect who they are in the community standing. Which makes me ask the question of myself, what am I willing to do to protect what other people think about me? What are you willing to do to simply protect your image your social standing? What are you willing to not say in the home, at the office, on your job? How are you willing to not or maybe answer questions based on that? Because the parents of the healed man just pitch it to him and say, hey, he can handle himself. I'm washing my hands of this. And so since they pitch it to to him, the Pharisees come back. They come back for a second time, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been healed, who had been blind, and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, and this man is Jesus, they're referencing Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, back to the blind man, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? See, they they don't care about who he is. They care about how did he do this? He answered them, I've already told you. You would not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Like, think about how that question landed in that audience. Do you want to be his followers, his apprentices, his pupils? Do you want to learn from the best? To the religious leaders, he's pitching that out to them. Do you want to really learn how to get things done? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we're disciples of Moses. They're trump-carded him. They're like, hey, he gave us the law, he gave us the prophet, he gave us the thing we follow. And we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. Like, he's kind of like, I was blind, guys, for years. And now I see, like, can you not recognize how amazing this is? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And ever since the world began, it has been heard that anyone, it, is, it has began, it has been heard that anyone opened eyes of a man born blind. It has never been heard. Never been. But yet, all those students of the law, all those religious leaders would have studied the law and the prophets from the day they were born, basically. And they would know that it had been prophesied time and time again when the sent one, when the Messiah, when the Savior of the world was going to come, the blind would see. And there it is. There it is. And yet, they reject it. And the one who has sight, who was blind, now has sight. And those who had sight have blinded themselves. They've blinded themselves because they know what the scriptures say. And this is exactly what has happened. And the one who was blind now has sight. He says, this has never been heard of since the beginning of the world. But I see. But I see. Verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? And they cast him out. Because his implications in verse 33, to say if this man were not from God, he can do nothing, is to say he's the sent one. He's implying that, well, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. And they utterly reject that and cast him out. Basically to say, you're not welcome back here. He's kicked out of the temple. He's kicked out of the community like center of their life. And all he could say is one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. And for that sight for that witnessing, for that not backing down about what has happened in his life, he's cast out and he's utterly alone. Sometimes following Jesus leads us to these places in our life where we are left utterly alone. And we may feel that, but look and see how we're actually not that. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, I want to stop right there just for a second. Found him. So Jesus went looking for him 
again. He wasn't going to leave him with just this miracle in his life, this newfound sight like, hey, this is what you needed. You needed this physical healing in your life. No, Jesus knew that that was just a cursor, a precursor to what he truly, genuinely needed. So he went looking, and he found him, and he says this. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus' favorite title for himself from Daniel chapter 7. And he, the, the, the healed man, says, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I want to point out the progression of the healed man's faith from general to specific. If you trace through this narrative of what happened in his life, after he gets the miracle healing, he shows up to his neighbors and his neighbors say, who did this? And he just says, hey, it's a man named Jesus. That's in verse uh, 11. All he knew is he was healed and all he picked up from that healing is like, somebody named Jesus. That's all I got. But then the Pharisees show up and interrogate him. And when they're interrogating him, he's like, okay, who is this healer to you? He's like, well, he must be a prophet. He must be someone that is coming from, like, from God in some way. He must be, I don't know, like a prophet. And then it gets more specific. The second time they come, they come back around to him, he's like, okay, who is this guy? And that's when we have the dialogue right there that we just read that he's like, well, he's a man of God. He's from God. He can't not be from God because if he wasn't from God, he couldn't do the things that he did. So he's somebody specific. He's from God himself. And then right there at the very end when Jesus comes back to the man asking, do you have faith in the Son of Man? He says, yes, but, but who is he? I, I, I believe in him, but who is he? And Jesus says, I'm him. I did the miracle for you. I am the one you've been waiting for. And his confession of faith went from general to some man to this one is the one we've longed for. And the word faith, when he says, yes, Lord, I believe, it is a word that means to cast complete and utter trust in a thing. That he's like, I'm all in on you. I'm trusting you with my life. You could give me sight, but I want everything that you have to offer. I'm abandoning everything else. He's already abandoned it. His neighbors, his parents, his community leaders, He's like, I'm all in on you. They want to know how you did it, but I want you. They didn't care about who, but I do. I'm all in. Which is why John writes this specific miracle, because think about John 20, 30, and 31 that we've read every week. He says, John has constructed these signs in such a way that we may believe in the name of Jesus and have life in his name. And this is what this man has experienced, life in his name, in the name of Jesus, that he's abandoned everything else and trusting solely on him. Like we sang this morning, Lord, I need you. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I need you. Teach me to abide in you. Teach me to trust you when I can't trust anything else. And then Jesus said this, the complexing statement that we just read before I got up here. For judgment, I came into this world that those 
who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What in the world does that mean? Well, the context of this story is we see that we can't separate God's love from his judgment. That the gospel, namely, in its revealing act, will be sight for some, but blindness for others. That this whole narrative, as it unfolds, that those who thought they could see realize that their self-centered self-sufficiency led them to utter blindness. That when we in our lives, just like the Pharisees, think we have got it all together, I have the answers, I know what I need in my life. When we reject a humble submission to Jesus and who he is, when we lean on our own self-righteousness of a checkbox religion, I come to church, I know how to read my Bible, I pray, I do this. When it's all about I, we strike ourselves blind. But for the one who was blind in this scenario, he recognized his blindness. And when he recognized his blindness, he knew, I need help. And when he recognized that he needed help, he had faith in Jesus to be the one who provided what he needed And what he needed was sight. So Jesus gave him sight. So who are we in this story? Who are we in this sign? Are we those who have recognized our utter blindness? This is not a forever state in this way. But to come to Christ, we have to recognize that we are blind. And we don't graduate from this position of recognition. We, we graduate and we lean into Jesus saying, I need more and more of you every day. Or are we the Pharisees? Like this, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? I'm a little confused. I, it kind of was implying that you thought we don't have the right answers. Because I know we do. So can we clear that up, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And if I'm a Pharisee, I'm thinking, what what does that mean? I thought I had all the answers. Jesus used this word guilt to talk about the, the sinful state. It's almost like he's calling this phrase back to the disciples' first question in verse 2. Who sinned? Who's guilty? This man or his parents? And now Jesus is recalling this in this final phrase of verse chapter 9 to say, if you say you had no guiltiness, no sin, you would be not blind. Like you would flip the script here. But now that you claim I do have sight on my own, You're blind. He confuses them again because that's his whole statement mission. Jesus is trying to get them to see that they are the epitome of Proverbs 26, 12. That says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is no more hope for him than a fool. Because these men think that they got it all together that we see. But Jesus wants them to realize they don't see 
because they've missed it. They've missed the entire point. They've missed it because they wanted to know the how he healed, not the who did the healing. Jesus claims that if you claim to have spiritual insight on your own, you need Jesus. Because self-sufficiency is not what this faith is about. Faith is about knowing that we have a lack of sight and we need Jesus to bring light to our lives. To remind you of the target statement is when we recognize we are blind, Jesus will give us sight. But if we think we can see on our own, we won't. So the question is, for each of us individually, is who are we in this story? Who are we? Are we those who claim to have the spiritual insight? Like, I know the right answers. It's all about I, I know. Or are we those who once were blind, but now we see? And if we are those who once were blind, but now we see, remember, the seeing man now becomes the sent one. That the seeing man became the sent one. In his healing, he was sent to the pool that means sent. But then after that, there's something that happens that Jesus doesn't have to direct him towards. He is sent to his neighbors. And he was a faithful witness with the information he had. He was a faithful witness with that information. It's like a man called Jesus did this. And then all of a sudden, his family members get brought in. The religious leaders, the community leaders, everyone he gets in front of, he never backs down. The seeing man is now the sent one. And the same is true for us. If you're a follower of Jesus and can say with the blind man, I once was blind, but now I see. You should hear what my life used to be like, but then I met Jesus and everything changed. Those people, the people of God, the church, are now all unified the sent ones that we don't just come to a building weekly but we are sent daily in our homes in our workplaces and in our communities so what i want to lead us to as we get ready to respond is asking you this simple question is who are you in the story are you needing jesus because you've depended for far too long on your own self-righteousness of like, I got this all together. I was raised in church. I was raised in church. I know the right answers. Or are you the blind man who in this moment you've recognized, I'm blind. I need Jesus. Or you know that story and you're, you're here just happy to be here and you're excited to enjoy Dollar Breakfast Club afterwards. But we're leading in to Easter. And if you're sitting in the third camp, the sent ones, my challenge to you during this song and during the next few weeks as we lead to Easter is, who are you being sent to? Easter and Christmas, the two biggest inviter opportunities of the year in the church calendar. And over 50% of people say that they were just invited by a friend or a coworker, they would come to church. It's not that church is the event. Simply, it's an opportunity to share the gospel. My prayer would be that you're sharing the gospel on a regular basis with those in your home, in your workplace, and everywhere you find yourself. 
But how are you praying for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to those around you where you're positioned in your life? I simply want to lead us in this time to pray towards that. Our prayer team is going to be down front if you need prayer specifically. But use this next song as a reflection to ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, who are you sending me to? And may I be like the healed man. Because remember, he's no longer the blind man. He's the healed man. But everybody that witnessed him in his life kept referring to him as the blind man. But he wasn't blind anymore. If you are those who have received sight from Jesus, you're not what you once were. Because his own testimony was, I once was blind, but now I see. So during this time, this last song, this final reflection, you can stay seated, you can stand and sing, you can come and make these stairs your personal altar. But ask the question, Holy Spirit, who are you sending me to? I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to stand and sing together. Father God, thank you so much for your word, how your word is alive, how it has the power to transform our lives through your Holy Spirit and how you're still making blind people have sight. God, my prayer is for our church that we would be a group of once was blind, but now I see people who are sent daily on a mission for you, proclaiming what you've done in our lives about the life change that we've experienced. Holy Spirit, open all of our eyes individually of who you are sending us to. In Jesus' name.